0: That was anointed worship. Do I need to say anything? I'm not sure if I need to say anything, but we'll just um, keep worshiping. That'd be fine with me. Wonderworking Power, week three. If it's your first time with us or your first time in a while, welcome. My name is Jim. I am blessed to be the lead pastor here at Decided Church, and we're so glad to have you. We want to get to know you, get to know your name. Your story, all of it. So, you matter to us. You matter to Jesus even more. So, we're so grateful that you chose to worship with us. We are working through verse by verse through the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 and 2. And so, you caught us right here today at the end of chapter 1. We're going to be covering verses 15 through 23. So, if you brought your Bible and you want to go ahead and save your place, we'll be right there in just a few minutes. Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. One of my favorite things about this church is the 8.45 prayer time. Anybody been? 8.45 prayer time, we call it prayer time, power time, or sometimes just power time. It all is the same. But you know what's so intriguing to me is different people's prayer styles, right? Come on, just be honest for just a second. Uh, Pretend nobody else is in the room. Don't be shooting... Don't be shooting eyes at anybody, okay? But we've all been to 45 prayer time, and maybe you haven't, but you've been in a setting where there's a lot of public prayer. And isn't it so interesting how different people pray different ways? Some people call it their prayer language or whatever, but there's a, you got, you got like the pray criers, like they just, they can't get past the first sentence, and then it's just like, dear God, you're so awesome and mighty, and I just, what a... Confess all my sin to you, and, and they're just like a puddle on the floor, right? They're pray criers. You know them. Just don't look at them right now. Just keep your head down. Everybody, head down. And then you've got the, <laughs> then you've got the pray conversators. Like they've got news to share, and this is their outlet, right? God, I just want to thank you that I, um, I uh, you know, I, I did that big job this week and it was tough, but I got through it, put in 40 hours and I'm just here now and it was really tough. So you got the pray conversators. They're like praying, but also sharing a little side news because they want you to pat them on the back when it's over. Heads down, heads down, everybody. <laughs> and then you've got, the, the, you got the, the pray slash breaking news people. Like, God, we just wanna come before you and we just don't know what's going on in our country right now, but I can't believe they passed that bill. And um, I just want you to uh, all remember um, my dear Aunt Sally, she, she fell down and, and broke her hip. Did you know that, Carol? And, like they're, and, and they pray, but they're like sharing breaking news while they're praying. And you got those type of prayer people, heads down. And then you've got the, then you've got the pray preachers. Like, they, they start praying, but somehow it weirdly evolves, and you feel like you're in the middle of a sermon, like, God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, and it has interceded on my behalf, and, and they just get going, and, and it started off all nice and calm and wonderful, but before you know it, they're just like Pentecostal preachers by the end of it. Everybody <laughs> prays differently. It's so weird. It's fun. Um, you guys can analyze. your. We need another personality test. If there's one thing we need, it's another personality test. What's your prayer style, right? Okay, so as you guys analyze your prayer style, I'll be preaching the rest of the service. Feel free to join if you want to. But as we approach the end of chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul's letting us in on his prayer life. And Paul's one of these types that I just mentioned. Paul was a prayer preacher, He was. Everything was going fine in verses 15 through 19, but then by the time we get around to verse 20, you're like, wait, what happened? Paul just started preaching. He got on a soapbox. We went from zero to 60 here. By the time we hit verse 20, Paul is straight up in a Holy Ghost moment. If he was in a Baptist church, this is the type of moment where, you know, the suit jacket's been thrown to the side, the tie's loosened, a couple of buttons are undone, the sleeves are rolled up. This is the kind of preaching Paul's doing by the end of chapter one. It's kind of like prayer preaching. So let's read it. If you'll stand, the words will be on the screen behind me. Ephesians chapter one, verse 15 through 23 Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Everything's going fine. Verse 17, Why is he praying? That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, which are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now off we go far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. In all seriousness, there's a lot packed into Paul's prayer or sermon, whatever you choose to call it right here in chapter one. So let's pray and we'll get into it this morning. God, we just ask that your presence be felt this morning. We know that we don't have to manipulate it to come. We don't have to force it to come, but that you are here because we have two or three gathered in your name. And so we lift up ourselves to you. We want to be moldable, willing vessels surrendered to you in this moment that you would teach us, teach us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In verses 1 through 6, just a little bit of review, and then we'll dive in. Verses 1 through 6, Paul emboldens us with the big-time gifts, right, and blessings from God the Father. And then in verses 7 through 14, our student pastor Jeremy did a great job speaking about Paul's enriching us with the gifts and promises from Jesus, God the Son, and now we have verses 15 through 23 where Paul is empowering us with the gifts and revelations from God the Spirit. So what we have in chapter 1 if you take it take it for face value the whole chapter what we have is a full trinitarian exposition of all that is ours because of salvation. God the Father was involved, God the Son in the form of Jesus was involved, and then God the Holy Spirit was involved, and each one of them bring gifts to us. Each one of them deposit certain gifts and blessings to us because of our salvation. That is rich, and that's why Ephesians is just so rich. It's just so much, so good. So my assignment today is to unload the truth in God's word that we cannot separate, we cannot, we cannot separate the Spirit of God from the power of God. I want us every time we see or read or we experience the Holy Spirit, we think power. We must equate the person with the power he brings, and that's what Paul is doing. We're going to divide it into two sections. We're going to talk about Paul's uh, part one, where he's praying all nice and and grateful-like, and then we'll talk about part two, where Paul just starts preaching, and it gets really good. Both are good, but part one, this is the purpose of Paul's prayer. And if you're taking notes, this is verses 15 through 18. The purpose of Paul's prayer, we see it right here, is because of faith and love in the local church. Faith and love. He evaluated the church at Ephesus and the churches surrounding, and he's like, if there's one thing that I can be thankful for, if there's one thing as a church planner and an apostle that I can be grateful for and thank God for on your behalf it's because I see in this church faith and love. Faith toward God and love toward the saints. Don't you love when Christianity just kind of crumbles down into just the basics? Every time the Word of God does that or the Apostle Paul does that, I just love when Paul just has that ability to break down complex doctrines and theology into, hey, what am I thankful for? Guys, you got faith in God and love toward the saints. Done. Case closed. An important note is that faith and love, they don't earn us participation in this great work of God, but they are evidence. They're evidence of our participation in God's plan. Faith and love. It's evident. It's the fruit that that this church in Ephesus was walking closely to the Lord. They had the faith toward God. They believed him for what he promised, and then they had love toward the saints. It's interesting that when jesus wrote in the book of revelation when he when he scripted out that letter to the church of ephesus what was that one thing what was that one thing that he found fault with he said you guys are doing a beautiful job i only wish that you hadn't left your first love the very thing that paul's commending them for here somewhere along the way they lost it you lose what you don't protect you lose what you don't guard. And so while I'm, I, I get to be the pastor of Decided Church, and guess what? I see these same two traits on full display in our church, week in and week out, throughout your Monday through Friday, not just on Sundays, but I see them on your Monday through Saturdays. I see the faith that you're believing God for what he promised for you in your life. You're, you're walking out in purpose. And then I see love toward the saints. I mean, how can you not... See love toward the saints and go to decided church. We're full, there's a group me for everything, every need possible. There's a group for it. Just download the app and you're sanctified. It's as easy as that. But but what I've come to and challenge us with is that the more we grow in the places we go, if we don't protect that love, if we don't protect that godly intentionality, if we don't guard that care for each other, we'll lose it. If the church of Ephesus could lose it by the time the book of Revelation was written, we can lose it too. So Paul's admonishment here is, hey, I'm thankful to God and I remember you in my prayers. Why do I remember you? You stick out to me because of your faith and your love. How many churches around? Just take a, ser- take a mental survey. Even just the churches on Kennerly Road, Broad River, Dutch Fork area. How many of them would you say are known have a reputation for faith and love. Faith and love, not, not many. Not many, sadly. So we, if we want to be known for that, we have to protect it and guard it, that deposit that was entrusted to us. We do this well, but no matter how big we get or, or, or how vast our reach, let us not lose that intense godly love for each other let's keep going. Paul's got a lot to say. And then he begins interceding for them to realize the gifts of the spirit at their disposal. Again, we have the gifts of God, the father. Then we had the gifts of God, the son. Now we have the gifts of the spirit in verses 15 through 23. And so Paul begins developing this prayer. He begins with thankfulness and then he moves into intercession. That's when you're praying on behalf of someone else. And Paul's saying, I, w- I want you to keep this faith and love, but I want you to build on it. There's more that, that belongs on that foundation of faith and love. And, it, and it's these things. It's, it's the spirit of revelation. It's the, it's the enlightenment. It's the hope and the power. If you're taking notes, these are the four things that Paul's interceding for them. Revelation, enlightenment, hope. And then power. What's revelation? He, he talks about it right here in verses 17. That, the, that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Wisdom and revelation in the knowledge. So revelation, it, it's wisdom, right? Revelation is the discernment of knowledge. It's the download of knowledge. Reveal is that root word of revelation. It's truth that's always been there. It's not a new truth. It's truth that's always been there, but it is, it is the, the part where you're able to now discern it and discover it. And that's what the Holy Spirit comes to do. The Holy Spirit's job is to indwell us and begin revealing truth that we already may know up here, but it hasn't transferred to our heart. And as we read, as we pray to God, as we fellowship with the saints, different revelations begin to download. Why? Because the Spirit's indwelling us. It's a gift that he brings because of salvation. Truths that that are as old as time itself, but they're revealed to us. It's not just the knowledge. Remember, the goal, the ultimate goal is never knowledge. The ultimate goal of Scripture, no matter where you read, it's never the knowledge itself. It's always the application of that knowledge. It's the download of that knowledge. Revelation. So, again, I'll say it. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Biblical knowledge apart from biblical revelation and biblical application is pride. Biblical knowledge that is set apart and isolated from Biblical revelation, in other words, downloading that knowledge into relevant, practical means, and then applying it, it's pride. So Paul says this gift that the Spirit wants to bring to you is revelation. It is that light bulb moment which brings us to the enlightenment in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The eyes of your hearts enlightened. When that revelation takes form and shape, it becomes meaningful. Now you know what to do with it. Enlightenment is the practical application of the Spirit's revelation. It's the it's the action item, right? You've been in a board meeting and your boss goes over tons of things and at the end of the meeting, he might list out a few action items. Like this is your part of what we discussed to take and run with. What the enlightenment is, is when revelation Happens in your heart because of the transformation of the Spirit, and you know what the truth is, and now you can apply it. Enlightenment is okay, that's your action item. Go, run, do it, accomplish it. It's the light bulb moment for the believer. And then we get to hope. Don't worry, I'm going to give you an illustration of this. But hope is the third one, and we read this in verse 18 Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Hope. When revelation leads to enlightenment, enlightenment leads to hope. Because now that you have your action item, that develops purpose in your life. Now you have somewhat of an identity. You know who you are, and you know what you're supposed to do with the truth that you just read. Knowledge is here. The download of that is revelation or wisdom. And then when that revelation becomes practical, that's enlightenment. And when we act out on that, that's the hope we have. I have seen hopeful people, and I have seen people full of despair. And what's always true when I run into somebody who's full of hope is they know who they are, and they know what they're here for. That's what the gift that the Spirit wants to bring to you. It's not just that, We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. It's not just that we have eternal security, but that Spirit is here with us now to reveal what's in Scripture. And because of that, to give us purpose and identity. That way we can live full of hope. It's not every Sunday I get to quote John Cooper, the lead singer of Skillet, but it just happens to fit today. The world, and, and this is what we mean in, in, the, in the process of knowledge versus hope, right? Knowledge would be this extreme over here where we're full of the nuts and bolts. We know all the basis of Christianity. We can, we can express that theology. We're, we're confident in our doctrines. And then we walk that out. And all the way over here at the other end of the spectrum is somebody who's actually living it not talking about it, but living it. They're the persons full of hope. John Cooper said this, the world will love you for talking about Jesus. They will hate you for living like him. It's so true. They'll have people on all the time on these morning shows and these national syndicated shows, all kinds of Jesus talking people. They love the religious people talking. They love them on their networks talking about how God is is, uh, important in their lives. But that same world will hate you if you stop talking about it as much as you start living it. We have to be people of hope. In other words, that revelation has to become enlightenment, and that enlightenment has to become hope. And guess what? When we become people of hope, we begin to be people of hope power. The last one, revelation meant, revelation meant, revelation, enlightenment, hope, and then power. Let me give you a quick illustration. So let's just take the doctrine of eternal security. It's all over scripture, but specifically it's right here. We just read about it last week in verse 13 and 14. Jeremy covered this, this, this gift of Jesus, which is He seals us with the spirit and says in verse 13 and 14 in in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were what? Sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee. In other words, the down payment, the earnest of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what we have laid out in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 is the doctrine of eternal security. In other words, we're sealed. In other words, when we come to faith in Jesus, when we look at what he's done for us on the cross, we come to a personal choice where we choose him and we realize we were chosen the whole time and we're found in him, God gives us a gift. Jesus specifically gives us a gift and that is the Holy Spirit and we're locked up we're eternally secure until we get to heaven. That is knowledge, the doctrine of eternal security. That's just basic Bible knowledge. But if it just stays up here and we never take time for the revelation, enlightenment, hope, and power, then what good is the doctrine of eternal security? What does it really matter? So what? God's got me saved until I get to heaven. Big deal. But if you take that doctrine of eternal security and you start over here with the knowledge and then you begin to say, okay, if I, if, if God's got me, the enlightenment of that doctrine is that I don't have to worry about keeping myself saved. Whoa, that's a, that's a relief of pressure right there. I don't have to worry about, um, I guess, performing or living up to the standard so that I, so that I stay saved, right? Right? That's a lot of pressure. If God got me saved, but it's my job to keep me saved, that's still a lot of pressure. Might as well just be works-based salvation. But the Spirit is revealing to me truth that's always been there, the fact that I don't have to earn, I don't have to keep my salvation. That's a light bulb moment. And so I take it a step further into the enlightenment phase. I'm like, wow, I have so much Freedom in my Christianity because I don't have to keep myself saved because God's got me locked up in, in the most beneficial way. <laughs> now I can live in freedom. Now I don't have that pressure hanging over my head. Now, because I know that I'm saved, that frees me up to, if I make a mistake, confess it and be gone with it. If I if I deal if I if I mess up or if I sin, all I have to do is confess it. The Bible says John First John one nine, confess it to Him, and I'm clean. It's like it never happened. I get a brand new slate again. That's a that is that gives me a lot of hope, and so now. I come all the way over here to where I'm walking in hope and I'm walking in power and the world looks at me like crazy because they see somebody who's not afraid to live freely, not afraid to be themselves because all the way over here, they had a revelation of the doctrine of eternal security. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit, revelation, enlightenment, hope, power. He wants you to live powerfully. You can never live powerfully if you're way over here just debating doctrines. All day with your nose stuck in a commentary for hours on end. Power. Now we get to end our sermon today with with Paul's sermon. He begins preaching and he starts getting going here in 19 and 20, 21, 22, 23. And this is the power part. Paul gets wound up. He gets carried away in the best way. And you would too. Here's why. So let's begin in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? So there's a couple things, right? We'll just keep reading now. Toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. We'll stop right there. A couple things about this power Paul outlines for us in 20 through 23. Number one, it's immeasurable. Number two, it's a working power. Number three, it's a very present power. Okay, so number one, it's immeasurable. In other words, the, the, really, the, the Greek behind this is surpassing. The word is surpassing or the, work is, the word is transcending. So it's actually an athletic term. It had to do with the Olympic Games back in these days. You know, the Olympics been around that long. But back in Paul's Roman, they would have these Roman games and part of those games was the javelin throw, right? And this word, immeasurable, is talking about how the javelin thrower would throw it farther than anyone else before him that javelin would go further and higher and faster than any previous record. That's the immeasurableness of God's power. It's farther, faster, more better. Down in South Carolina, we can put those two words together and it really means something substantial, more, better. There's, and this is what I love about the immeasurableness of God's power. You, everybody knows Romans 1.16, we don't have time to go there, but it says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the... Power, all one of you knew it. For it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's the immeasurableness of God's power to bring people to salvation. That's part of this immeasurable power. That the spirit has the ability to reach out and tug your heart and pull him to you. It's got the dynamite power. Remember, power is dynamis, dynamite. But that's not the power that this is talking about. Let's read it again. It says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward unbelievers, toward those who are lost. No, this is, this is the immeasurable greatness of this power toward us who believe. You mean to tell me the power doesn't stop working? The power that drew me into salvation is still the power that has a lot of juice left for me, who, who I already believe, and I'm trying to grow in that belief. There's immeasurable power for me too. Acts 1.8. But after this, you will receive... Was he talking to believers or non-believers? Jesus was talking to his believers, his apostles. He says, but after this, what? Him ascending, you will receive power. So power is for the unsaved to draw them to the gospel, and that same power is for believers to equip them for the work of ministry. This is immeasurable here. This power is the same, by the way. It's the Holy Spirit. He's like the dual-threat quarterback. He He can throw a pass or he can run. This Holy Spirit is a dual-threat quarterback, shall we say, for the saints, right? Make sense? LOL. That was for you, Jake. Um, So this is the same person. It's the same Holy Spirit that has the immeasurable power to draw those who are lost to himself and also has this same amount of immeasurable power to equip us all at the same time. It's immeasurable. Number two, it's a working power. In other words, it's not display only, you know, when we get around something that's, that's just sacred and, and is so important and we, we kind of hold it in high regard, we might, um, there might be a piece of furniture or a piece of china or a piece of decoration that our grandmothers keep up and away and out of sight. Well, maybe it's in sight, right? Let's be real. She wants it to be seen, but it's a no-touch policy. You've been into a store where the valuables are up high. This type of working power, look at it, in verse 19 and 20, it's according to the working of his power, of his great might, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So this is a working power. This is not a display-only power. It's not like you can look at it, but don't touch it. You can see it, but you don't have access to it. This is a power, um, the, the, the word working is actually in ergo, which means energy. It's, it's where we get our word energy from. This is a grave emptying power. And see, that's not when I say grave emptying power, most of you are thinking about a historical event. But no, grave emptying power means it's relevant for now. Let's look at Romans 6, 12 through 14. This is one verse that I do want us to take time to look at. Paul says, "...let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions." Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been, what? Brought from death to life. That's that grave-emptying power. Not just historically for Jesus, but now relevant for me. That means I have the power to not let sin win. I have the power now that I can put my sins in the grave and live in freedom. It says, um you've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you. How is that possible? It's because of the working power. It's immeasurable. It's also working. It's available. It's not for display only. It's not a historical power. It's a now power, which brings me to the last point. It's a very present power. Man, so it's, we skipped a little bit. It's not only a grave-emptying power, but look at how he goes on in verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. In other words, there are dimensions and strongholds that we're not even aware of that this power is capable of bringing down. Stuff we don't even have the comprehension to understand. Maybe we do just a smidge because the spirit lives within us, but there are principalities and powers that Paul goes on to talk about in chapter six right here that we don't even fully comprehend that this same power that we have now living within us has taken down strongholds and principalities. It's a dominating power. We don't even understand the magnitude of this power. It's like you remember when um, David went to fight Goliath, and he got equipped, he got outfitted with Saul's armor, and that was their that was their plan A, right? And so he has, if you can imagine, this heavy chainmail on him and this huge sword. In a way, in in the most spiritual way, having this kind of power at our disposal is a little bit like David in King Saul's armor. It's like, whoa, this is so much, I don't even necessarily know what to do with it. It's a lot of, it's dominating power. And then last but not least, it's a very present power. It's immeasurable. It's working. It's very present, not just in the age to come. Look at what it says in verse 21. It's above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Not only in this age. See, we all know what happens at the end of the story. We've all read Revelation. We all know that God displays such great power in the end times to bring Satan and his demons and the Antichrist and throw them in the pit forever and rule and reign for a thousand years, right? We get that kind of power. That's the age to come, but it it also says not only in this age, and I think now, removed about 2,000 years from the cross, we lose sight of the fact that this early church experienced the power of God in ways we don't touch. With a 10-foot pole, with an 8-foot oar. Y'all don't even see this thing I have up on stage. I can't even, I can't even actually pick it all the way up because it's too tall. But the, the early church, the reason why Paul phrased it this way and not... If, if I were to write this letter to us, I would say not only the age to come, but also for now. But this church experienced that power like in unreal ways. So Paul's saying Not it's, it's present now. And I know you're enjoying it now you're sealing and you're seeing healings and miracles and signs and wonders all around right now. But this is the same power for later. Don't forget. It's a very present power. Access to this power has been gifted specifically to the church in Jesus. Let me say that again. Access to this kind of power has been gifted specifically to the church in Jesus. Look at the rest of the passage. And he put all things under his feet. Who's him? Jesus. And gave him as head over all things to the church. Gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this power is specifically packaged up and deposited in Jesus to the church. Very present power. Not in part, but in full. No reservations. This, is, this kind of power is the unedited director's cut. You feel me? This is the expanded edition. This is like an oversized, overkill, lethal weapon. So where is it, right? At the end of the day... When it's all said and done, and and that was it. That was chapter one. My question is, where is that kind of power? How do I access it? Where did it go? What's the difference between now and the early church in Ephesus that Paul was writing to? How come he phrased it this way? Not only for now, but also in the age to come, when I would have rewritten that a million times, not only for the age to come, but also for now. What do we need to know about this power? Just a couple of things and we're done. I'm going to try to fly through this stuff. What do we need to know? The power doesn't change. In other words, the power that Paul is talking about right here, it hasn't changed. Why? Because the source of the power hasn't changed. The source of the power hasn't changed. Therefore, the power is still the same. It's still fully here. How do we know that? Well, the indwelling presence of the Spirit hasn't changed. Last time I checked, the resurrection didn't change. Last time I checked, the position and authority of Jesus hasn't changed. So the only thing that could have changed, the only reason why we're a little bit different than this early church in Ephesus is because we've changed. The power didn't change. The authority of Jesus hasn't changed. The resurrection hasn't changed. The power, the source of all that is still here. And it's still mighty and it's still miracle working power. So the only thing that could have moved is us. We've all experienced a powerful moment when the Spirit has our full attention. So we know that it's possible. We've reached that level before. Think back to a time where you felt the power of the Spirit in your life. Maybe it was a worship experience. Maybe it was a sermon. Maybe it was a moment of repentance and surrender. We'll come back to that later. We've all tasted and seen his goodness. We've stood before in the power of his presence, but how do we get back there? How do we access that on a regular basis? The only way I'm convinced since the, since the power hasn't changed and the source of that power hasn't changed, I'm convinced that the only way we can limit that power is if we get in the way. Or more likely, we get out of the way. And this is where I'll need somebody's help. Bradley, you look like you just want to be part of this illustration again. Awesome. Awesome partly because I can't hold this microphone and this oar at the same time. You got it? You're going to have to go down to the floor, though, because you won't even be able to pick it up. I want you to picture the power of the Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit and power are synonymous. You can't separate the person from his power. And so if we are to picture the power of the Spirit that's available to us as a waterfall mighty gushing overflowing waterfall go ahead i want you to pick up your oar down there and what happens is when we get saved and we experience this power for the first time and we're on fire for the lord guess where we are we're under the waterfall of his power it never changed. It doesn't let up. It doesn't move. It doesn't dry up. It's fully, powerfully there at any moment that you want to access it. The problem is, Bradley starts paddling away. See if you can paddle that sucker. I don't even know what kind of paddle this is. But we watch out for Brandon's face. Why don't you turn around? You can hit me instead of Brandon. There we go. That's more like it. So Bradley somehow if listen if the power hasn't changed and the source of the power hasn't gone anywhere the only thing that's left is us we paddle away from the power now how do we do that a couple of things come to my mind unrepentant sin that's a paddle give us one big stroke unrepentant sin there it goes we just lost a little bit of power still available we moved guess what else Worldly distractions. I don't have my phone up here, but it's things like this. Worldly distractions, social media, apps, agendas, Amazon. Can I get an amen? And just with one stroke, one big stroke of the oar, Amazon has pulled us out of that power. That's silly, but you know what I mean. It's worldly distractions remove us from being aware of the waterfall itself. So it's unrepentant sin. It's worldly distractions. Another one, and this is not an exhaustive list, but it's it's the self-centered priorities. It's the self-centered agenda. It's this thing. I brought one. When this becomes God... That's one big stroke away from the waterfall of his power. Did God somehow limit his power? Did he hide it from us? Is the same God that emptied the tomb now on a vacation? He didn't go anywhere. The the power has not changed. It is still as rich and full and powerful as it was in the days of Moses when he parted the Red Sea and then the days of Joshua when he brought down the walls. It's the same power. The only thing that's different between then and now is we paddle away. Thank you, Brad. We paddle away. Unrepentant sin, worldly distractions, self-centered agendas. So what do we need to do? I like it when it's just broken down. What do I need to know? What do I need to do, right? So what do we need to know is that the power hasn't changed and it hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there. What do we need to do? Very simple. We need to go back to that place. The moment you felt that raw power. What was the secret? Go back to that place in your mind. What, what were you like? What was your mindset? Analyze that situation. Brokenness, maybe, when you felt that power. Was it, was it surrender? Was it a moment of real, true surrender where you put everything out there to God and said, not my will, but yours? Maybe it was self-denial. Maybe it was a sincere emptying of yourself. At Decided Church, we like to call that space-making. That Jim would be so gutted out of Jim that even a whisper would sound like a hurricane in my heart. We're space-makers. How hungry are you for the wonder-working power? Because we can keep doing church like this. If that's what everybody wants, if that's the collective vote, we can just keep doing church like this, but I would like to get a little more under the waterfall. How about you? One day at a time, one Sunday at a time, one quiet time at a time one fellowship at a time, one prayer at a time. I want to start, I want to begin paddling back under that power so that I can understand like Paul wrote it here because this was so convicting that he said not only in this age but also in the age to come. I want to get to the mental place where I can agree with Paul that, yeah, this stuff is good now, but it's going to be the same good stuff then. How do we get back? We have to immerse ourselves in the word. We have to pray for it. In other words, you got to hunger for it. You can't just sit. In other words, you can't lie to the Holy Spirit and crave his power at the same time. You can't sit over here in this oasis, this little pool of self-centeredness and say, man, I sure wish that power, but I am not giving up my life. Doesn't work that way. So you have to pray for it. you got to hunger for it. And hey, sounds so simple. You have to obey his voice. When you hear it, respond. It's why John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's why Jesus said in John 15, abide in me. It's why Paul writes to the churches at Thessalonica. He says, don't quench the spirit. Why? Because the spirit is the power. Spirit, power, synonymous. And that's where we get confused between the indwelling and the filling of the spirit indwelling of the spirit we've all got him, right we've all got the indwelling holy spirit so how come so many times we don't feel necessarily filled do we get more of the spirit sometime later in life no he's 100 percent there but you can quench him and you can lie to him and you can deny him and you can disobey him and therefore you don't feel filled But when we come to a moment of self-denial, when we come to a moment of brokenness and repentance, when we come back to a moment of surrender and self-emptying, when we lay up all of Jim on the altar and say, this might be nice and I might enjoy it, but it's not worth missing out on the power. It's not worth missing out on that waterfall presence of the Spirit. That's what I crave, that's what I want. So we can keep doing church like this. Check the box, do a little community, do a little serving, as long as I get a photo to post. We've moved, not him, we've moved. I got to row back to the waterfall of his power. And this is why it's so important. This is going to be tricky to do with a microphone. I might need one more volunteer. Brandon's close. This is why it's so important to read our Bibles. You take a match there, big guy. Yeah, we're going to have a, little, have a little Holy Spirit fire in church, but not yet. Not, not yet ready. This is why it's so important to read our Bibles. And, and you hear me emphasize that so much. Why is Jim always talking about reading your Bible daily? Because with every time you crack this book, that's one little stroke back to the power. With every time you show up here when you don't want to and serve when you don't want to and you may not feel it and your emotions may not even be involved, who cares? That's one more stroke to the power. Every time you get around a small group, a group of believers who is edifying you and encouraging you, although you may not say a word and you may not even put your prayer request out there, it doesn't matter. It's one more stroke to the power and eventually that sucker is gonna light. You cannot bump up against the word of God and the presence of God and the people of God and not be affected. You cannot keep bumping up against the word of God and not eventually light. That's why it's so important. We don't just talk about reading your Bible to read your Bible. We talk about reading your Bible because every time is like flint on flint and eventually that sucker is gonna light and you will experience the power It doesn't matter if you don't feel anything. One time I read Numbers chapter 13, and it didn't speak to me, so I'm done. One time I read about Leviticus and some kind of bloody scapegoat. It doesn't make sense to me, so I'm done. Let's be honest. That's how we feel sometimes. I've been reading, and I'm not saying this to be boastful, but I've been reading the Word of God for almost... 30 years and I still go through dry seasons when I get absolutely nothing out of my quiet time. It doesn't matter. It's a strike against the box. It brings me that much closer to a spark, which means I'm that much closer to some Holy Ghost fire, Stephen Toller. You know what I mean? But don't blame Okay, so this, this, is, this is the part that we all want to get to, right? So what about the Pentecostal Holiness Movement? What about those crazy charismatics? If what you're saying is true, does decided church want to end up like that? What do we do? I mean, we've all heard about it. Maybe you've even experienced it. These tunnels of fire, speaking in tongues, prophetic words, miracles, signs, and wonders. I just want to be careful around the Holy Spirit because I don't want to get that far, that deep, because that's weird. I was talking to a friend this past week and she went to a church service and she's a, believer, she's a strong believer and she was talking about how uncomfortable she felt because this preacher in the middle of a sermon just stopped and started laying hands and casting out demons and making people fall out and run in circles and talk foreign languages and she said, I'm sorry, but I don't know how to reconcile the Holy Spirit's power with what i just saw because there's no denying that it was real i mean i saw it i i was right there in the room and he looked at me a couple of times i was about ready to get out of there so we all know that it's real sometimes it's fake and you can tell those ones just doing it for the tv views not naming names but you know if if you've been around it or you've been exposed to it you know that it's not fake you know it's actually really happening but where's, what's the difference? Where do we draw the line? You remember the Hulk or any of those Marvel superheroes, right? It's real big in my house. If you don't know about him, just come to the Reese's. We got one of those movies on like every night of the week. What happens to the Hulk more times than not? It's not that he... Um, He's an evil guy. He's not part of the resistance. What do you call him? What are the the bad people? I don't know. I'm not deep into it like the boys. They probably know right away. But Hulk is one of the good guys, right? He plays on the right team. Isn't he part of the Avengers? So he's one of the good guys. So why is he always getting in trouble and ending up destroying way more than he thought than, than, than he should? Why is he always causing more problems sometimes than he's worth? Well, it's not that he has too much power. The power's great. He needs every bit of that power, but he mishandles it or misuses it or misunderstands it. It's a mishandling of the power. So when you see churches like this, First thing to remember is that you have the same spirit. So if it's real, then your spirit ought to be tracking with it. If your spirit does not track with it, then you can understand, you can discern that, Hey, it's that gift of the spirit. It's called knowledge and then revelation and then enlightenment. So if it's not tracking with your spirit, then you can understand that there's a lot of hoax out there that have access to that power. Remember, it's not a relic. It's not high and away. It's accessible. So you have a lot of people playing with the power that's very real, but they're mishandling it and misusing it and misunderstanding it. And they end up causing a lot more damage than good. Why? Because they just want to feel that power. I want to close with 1 Thessalonians chapter five. We referenced this passage earlier, but it's the best way to leave you. Do not quench the spirit. Follow up. Do not despise the prophecies. So Paul's telling us, don't despise that stuff. Don't write it all off as evil and bad. Don't despise the prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. It's actually pretty simple. Don't quench the spirit. In other words, you have full power. It's accessible power. And don't despise the prophecies because some of them are real. But in everything, as with everything, you gotta test it. Does my spirit align with it? If not, toss it out. If it's good, keep it. Very simple. But don't judge someone else's spark just because you have a wet match. That's what I'll leave you with. Don't judge someone else's fire just because your match is wet. Because you've been sitting in the kiddie pool For far too long. And if you're like me this morning, you want to make some strong and steady rows back to that waterfall of God's power. Let's pray. We're gonna keep this nice and quick because we're over time. I'm just wondering if there's anybody who would stand up and say, God, I wanna I wanna position myself closer to that waterfall. If If it's anything, maybe it's just one stroke back to your presence. If it's anything, maybe I just need to confess some sin. If it's anything, maybe I just need to learn to put my agenda to the side. If it's anything, God, I wanna empty myself. I wanna come to a moment of full surrender right here now in this service and say, I need to get back to the power. You've realized this morning that he hasn't moved. The source is still there. The waterfall hasn't run out of anything. It's still overflowing. It's full. It's mighty to save. And guess what? It's not only mighty to save, it's mighty to you who believe. If that's you, would you stand? Just stand up with me. I'm standing. I want to get closer to that power. I want to move towards that power. I want to be able to say like Paul said to the church at Ephesus, not only in this age because it's that good, but also in the age to come. Will you stand with me? Will you just stand right where you are? I'll pray for us. I want to get back to that power. Jesus, we need you in this room. And most of all, God, we want to empty ourselves. We've come this morning because we want to surrender ourselves. I'm far too guilty of holding my priorities and my agenda above listening to your voice. God, I'm if I'm honest, I'm far too distracted with what this world has to offer, which is crippling me from getting back to the power. God, help me to keep short accounts with you, whatever that is, with every head bowed and every eye closed, just confess it, get it out there. Tell the Lord, 1 John 1, 9 says, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Just confess it, repent of it, and get back to the power. God, we need you in this moment. Would you do a work during this last song that only you can do? It's in Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand as we continue in worship. And again.